0: You know, sometimes uh, people talk about interstellar communication as an attempt to join the Galactic Club. The, the thing I find so strange is no one ever talks about paying our dues um, or, or even submitting an application. That's what METI does. <laughs> or,
1: maybe, or the idea that maybe we, you know, curiosity is a, is a, is a species-specific thing.
0: It may be. You know, we, we assume that the extraterrestrials are going to be curious, and maybe the ones who we encounter are, because remember, the, there, could be, uh, there could be highly intelligent whale-like creatures creating these great symphonies, they sing to one another, but if they don't create radio transmitters, we're not going to know about them.
2: Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I am Anson Mount. And for those who missed the setup last time, set the scene. What is this noise? (laughs) Well,
1: first of all, if you missed the setup last time, it means you didn't listen to the last episode, which you should. You definitely should. Uh, We are in my screened-in porch uh, with the outdoor fireplace... Hosting a fire for the first time for the Mount family that Brandon built. And the tree frogs are going insane.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's finally warm enough they've woken up. The spring peepers are... If you'll remember from last time, the frogs are currently using the 2.9 kilohertz bandwidth for communication. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: I'm going to have to cancel that out right now with a notch filter. Last time, we talked about finding them right where to look and reasons why we haven't found anything yet <laughs> now assuming they're out there what do we say to them what should we say should we say anything at all everyone knows about the gold record on the voyager with the whale sounds johnny be good hello in a bunch of languages it also included drawings of anatomically correct human beings and a map on how to get to earth prompting some clever meme writer to joke. We got a response from the aliens. It says, please stop sending us nude selfies and directions on how to get to your house. It's creepy. Signed, the aliens. (laughs) I love that. The last time we talked to Doug Vokic was over a year and a half ago, and his organization, Medi, had yet to send its first message. So I caught up with him recently to check on his progress.
3: Thank you for... We're calling Medi. messaging extraterrestrial intelligence.
2: Hello, this is Doug Vocket. Hello, Doug. This is Brandon. Hi there. How's it going? I'm good. Can you hear me okay?
4: I can. Can you hear me?
2: Oh, yes, fine. I just have a very uh, strange... I can't describe the, the weird wiring I've got going on to record this. <laughs> well, how appropriate, actually, that I should be testing this out. It with is. Own, right? It
4: is. That's right. Communication is what we're all about.
2: I'm testing out an experimental communication system over here myself. Uh, have you started messaging?
4: METI sent its first interstellar messages in October of 2017, uh, which was uh, shortly after you and I uh, talked the first time. Um, and uh, this was uh, part of a project that was launched by a music festival in Barcelona called Sonar. Uh, and they were celebrating their 25th anniversary. They wanted to do something special to mark that anniversary. Uh, so uh, we teamed up and sent a message to a nearby star. Um, it is a, a star. Uh, named Leuton's Star, which is one of the nearest stars to Earth, and we used a a transmitter north of the Arctic Circle uh, in Tromsø, Norway. This is a a town that is best known as a tourist site because it's a great place to go if you want to see the northern lights, the aurora borealis, Uh, but that means scientists also go to that location to study the northern lights and understand them. And so we used the same instrument they use to send radio signals into the atmosphere and look at the, the... signals that bounce back to talk about the uh, composition and structure of the northern lights. We used the same telescope, but we aimed it at a nearby star.
2: And how far away is that star?
4: The star is uh, 12 uh, light years away. That means uh, it is a a test of patience, but on a galactic scale, this is one of the nearest stars. In fact, we chose that star because it is the closest star visible uh, from that far north uh, on the globe that is known to have a habitable exoplanet.
2: What was the content of the first message?
4: Sure. The first message was geared toward the music festival that this was meant to commemorate. So we uh, provided a tutorial that would help uh, to explain the music that follows. So the folks at Sonar are engaged with the um, international uh, techno music uh, group so they had a lot of their uh, contributors create specially crafted music for the transmission and our group Medi, designed a tutorial that would help the extraterrestrials understand music over the course of three days uh, we had transmissions our particular packet the tutorial took only 11 minutes on each of those three days
2: i like that Voyager is sort of a time capsule of the time. We sent them some rock and roll and some classical, but music has evolved since then. So now we're sending techno music. <laughs> and at first, I thought. And I'm sorry.
1: How do you explain techno music to well, anyone? <laughs> I
2: thought. At first I thought it was like, oh no, it's all going to be like EDM, like electronic dance music. And I thought, oh, should we also send them instructions on how to synthesize ecstasy? Because it's going to be the only way they're going to understand and like this. I'm sorry. I'm a bit of a snob about EDM music. I don't like it. But if you go to sonarcalling.com, you can hear some samples of the music broadcast by the invited musician. And it's actually really eclectic music a lot of experimental stuff the musicians thought aliens might enjoy and there's interviews there with the musicians explaining how they approached the commission. So this signal was about music and the tools needed to decode the signal and hear the music. In some ways this is a much more modest approach to messaging because back in the 1970s in our first message to the aliens. Francis Drake sent a message from the Arecibo scopes with a very dense packet of information.
0: You look at that Arecibo message from 1974, and there was a lot crammed into three minutes. I mean, there's a description of our counting system, chemical elements important to life on Earth, the chemical composition of our DNA, population of the Earth, how tall we are, what we look like you know, uh, our solar system and the technology that we use to transmit it, I think it's really implausible that an extraterrestrial could unpack all of that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to. I mean, the the important thing about that message is still true today, which is it demonstrates we have the ability to transmit. um, And the basic principle is to think about what do we have in common.
2: that is what is that you recognize that sound what do you think it, it is porpoises oh that's pretty close it sounds really sci-fi though it sounds like it sounds like technology at work yeah wettle seals oh wow under the ice mm-hmm. yeah echolocating and talking to each other i mean this kind of highlights the problem you know doug was just talking about figuring out what we have in common with aliens that is a massive undertaking And we have to assume that math and science will be the thing that unites us. And it's a reasonable assumption. But we haven't yet been able to understand and communicate with, you know... uh animals, maybe not quite of our intelligence, um, on this planet, despite evolving on the same planet, despite having a common ancestor, is there, is there ever any interdisciplinary conversation going on between people that are trying to understand, let's say, dolphin communication, whales, elephants, other highly social, sociable animals? You
4: are absolutely right. I mean, it is it is sobering to think of the challenges of communicating with an intelligence on another planet when we're not able to communicate very clearly with um, species here on our own world that we have a lot of genetic material in common with, and that we have the advantage of being able to be face-to-face with. So within uh, the community of uh, biologists and linguists who are increasingly getting involved with SETI, there are people like uh, Denise Hertzing, who is a dolphin researcher, who has gone into the ocean and interacted with not just one-off conversations with random dolphins that come by, but the same dolphin um, over the course of a decade or more and using uh, technologies to facilitate that communication. You know, one of the challenges of communicating with a dolphin is that they use sonar for a lot of their sensing of the world. And so she has teamed up with uh engineers who have created uh an apparatus that allows a a transmission of signals that mimic those of dolphins so that we can now attempt to communicate with dolphins in their own terms
2: now the assumption is that we may have more in common with extraterrestrials than dolphins because any communication would be facilitated by technology and that technology would be based on science which uses universally shared principles like math. But that does not even attempt to bring into the conversation extraterrestrials with dolphin-like intelligence, which the universe may be full of, but just not the kind of intelligence that builds radio telescopes.
0: When I first got really intrigued about SETI, it was because of the challenges of creating a message. In the the early days of SETI, there was the assumption that... um, You know, any civilization that can build a telescope needs to know math and science. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to do it. And I agree with that. But then there was this additional assumption. And so all we need to do is, you know, send them the periodic table of elements or, you know, send them some basic arithmetic and build up. And they'll obviously clearly understand it, no problem. And we'll have a transparent communication system. I think that's incredibly implausible. When we think of communication, our... uh, distinguishing type of communication that humans have that uh, other creatures here on earth don't have at least in the same way that we do with the same complexity and the same uh, flexibility is language and so we take that as the hallmark of how to communicate and so it's natural then to put all of our messages cast all of our messages in this framework of linguistics um, but there's another way of thinking of communication that takes a broader perspective and says, look, okay, so it's true. A lot of other creatures don't use language to communicate, and we communicate with one another in a lot of other ways as well, through images. And so what, what is a broader way of thinking about how something stands for something else? A sign stands for something. So a, a, a word, the word, um, the moon, stands for this satellite that we see, um, orbiting our planet. Uh, but it doesn't have to be called the moon in French. It's called la lune. And it's it's a different word. It's an arbitrary word. So that's a particular type of sign for semioticians. It's a symbol. There's an arbitrary connection between the sign and what we're sending, but there are other signs that there's a closer connection. And so that's what we're intrigued with, um, and transmitting sure, to the chemical makeup, or the the uh, what else? The ch- ch- chemical chemical makeup is a, a a great example because there is um, if you look at a schematic uh, a, a branching of how the carbon and hydrogen combine together. There's actually a link between that picture uh, of the molecule and the actual structure of that molecule, um, or uh, skull and crossbones stands for poison because there's a link between them. So in the messages we're getting ready to send, we're sending radio signals that stand for the ideas themselves. So there's often been this idea when when Frank did his first search uh, in 1960, technology was very limited so he had to pick a single frequency. And so he chose uh, to look at because there are billions of possibilities, but you had to choose one. It was all that was technically feasible. He chose a frequency um, that hydrogen radiates at when it makes a switch from one phase to another, because hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. Astronomers everywhere sure. should know it. That um, makes sense. But now, but it's, it's still that's a that's a place to meet. But what we want to do is send radio signals that correspond to particular um, concepts so uh, in the same way that that line stands for hydrogen there are lines that stand for ammonia so we can actually start conveying those concepts without the um, using the words um, ammonia and hydrogen but actually sending signals that mimic those And and then we do uh, use some basic arithmetic to talk about how radio waves work, that you have a, a sine wave that has a particular frequency and a particular duration. And the beauty of sending, talking about how long something lasts, is you can send a radio signal that lasts, say, three seconds. And now we've introduced our unit of time. Now we've introduced frequency by sending it at one frequency, explaining that, sending it at a different frequency and explaining that. So the goals, in a sense, are modest.
2: You got that? Send them a 60 kilohertz signal, and the only information in that signal is, This is 60 kilohertz. Or send a signal 3 seconds long, and encoded in that signal is the message, This is 3 seconds. So the goals are modest, but some members in the astrophysics community now believe the very attempt to contact ET may be foolish,
0: or even dangerous. I think the biggest reservation is just um, that there are people like Stephen Hawking, famous guy, renowned scientist, who says, you better be careful, because if you transmit, maybe the aliens will come to Earth. And you know we can, we can go into the details about why that really doesn't seem plausible. But I think the impact of that is, I mean, who in their right mind wants to take on Stephen Hawking? And so SETI is a difficult project to fund, because we don't know if there's anyone out there to find. The last thing any organization needs to do is get a reputation for threatening the future of humanity.
1: That's Probably a bad bullet point to put on your disclosure sheet for any startup could result in the end of all humanity. (laughs) Exactly. I was going to say, threatening the future of humanity
2: might be an obstacle to one's fundraising efforts. (laughs) But honestly, how likely is that? Isn't it worth the risk? In the beginning, Frank Drake certainly believed so because he sent the first message. Was he being careless? Too excited about his new toy to question the consequences? Perhaps. But for some reason, Drake went from sending messages to becoming a vocal critic of sending messages.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering what it was like for you to go from growing up this little boy, seeing these, this search begin, and to have the, the father of this movement to suddenly become your critic.
0: Frank has a very coherent reason why he's opposed. He thinks it's a distraction from SETI. He thinks that there are limited funds, and if you start putting them in transmitting, that takes away from listening. One of the things that I have had to recognize is to always question authority, no matter who they are and how intelligent and, and, and no matter how much of a genius they are. And, and I don't think that even makes uh, my critics' concerns wrong, it just means you have to weigh a number of factors, and I don't think they're weighing all of the factors. So I respect uh, Frank's assessment that he he'd rather focus more of his energies on search. I say continue. You're the father of it. You did a great job. But I think sometimes, sometimes I think it's hard for people who've really done something revolutionary to recognize it themselves. And so I would I would also want Frank to just stop and think about what he began when he sent that message in 1974, because I think that. Marked an era as important as when he did his first search for signals in 1960.
1: We were speaking earlier about the fact that the, the one of the criticisms of uh, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, and we'll get into what that means in a second, is that, you know, it didn't go so well for the Aborigines. That's um fine. but I, yeah, I, 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 I really don't think that the Manhattan Indians were sending radio packets to Spain.
0: They weren't. They were not. You know, uh, Columbus was on his way. Uh, the European uh, settlers were on their way, regardless of anything uh, that the indigenous peoples did. So. Um, my my sense is, if the aliens are on their way, then it's much better to say we're we're more interesting as conversational partners than as creatures to wipe out. And, you know, it, and and but I do take seriously that concern that you know why would anyone want to do a project that really is a threat, but. The importance uh, of thinking about the details, I, I can't stress enough. So when Hawking says, yeah, maybe maybe the aliens will come to Earth and destroy us, well, that's possible. But um, sending intentional signals doesn't increase the chances of that. And, and here's the reason. If you have the ability to travel between the stars, you can already pick up I Love Lucy or, or any of the TV signals we've been sending out you know, for 70, 80 years. If we look at the growth of our own radio technology since radio astronomy began, and then just project that out two, three hundred years, we ourselves will have the ability to detect uh, uh, civilizations with our level of leakage radiation, our human levels of radiation, out to 500 light years. So, and you know, we still won't have the ability to travel to the stars at that point. So it doesn't increase the risks. And so then the question is, why forestall it? Why hold off on a potentially fruitful area of scientific inquiry?
4: There's a, a, an opportunity for more active engagement with METI than there is for SETI, which must simply observe. Astronomy is a very passive science that is observing but not experimenting. In that sense, METI is actually much more like a traditional scientific experiment where you say, well, I think this kind of message might work, so I'm going to send this to this group of stars, but maybe a different message will work, so I'll send that to a different kind of star. And you set up an experiment, um, but now the big difference between the experiment that we're doing in METI uh, and the traditional scientific experiment is the time scale. Because, you know, uh, I was trained, I'd go to, I, I uh, identify some hypothesis, I go to the lab, I test it, and, you know, in a week or a month later, I'll know whether my hypothesis is tested, you know, whether it's supported or not. When we're talking about an inherently multi-generational project, we have to think of science on timescales of the scope that we never have before.
2: But a future reply from ET could be so very far away in the future that we could easily forget that we sent it in the first place and forget to look for the reply. This is a long-term, multi-generational project, and we're not great at sustaining those. At least, not if the only impetus is scientific discovery. The endeavor needs to be integrated into the fabric of the culture,
1: if it is to be lasting. Well, this is why I have these visions of a green... Globulous alien walking down a ramp from a spaceship, yelling, "Lucy, I'm home!"
2: <laughs>
1: to a species that probably doesn't
2: even speak English anymore, much less know what TV is or "I love Lucy" or any of that stuff. Because at that point, he may be they, to be cynical. They may be talking to cavemen again.
1: <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> Oh
0: my God, that's actually really likely. <laughs> Another 10,000 year project is the clock of the Long Now, being created by the Long Now Foundation. And it is a clock that can maintain itself largely on its own, but periodically it requires human intervention so people remember to be involved with it. That may be what we need to keep alive the memory of the messages that we send to stars so that as we get a response back, if we do, in 100 years or 1,000 years, we'll remember what that original message was, and we'll remember, aha, this is the first day that we could detect a signal from an extraterrestrial on Proxima B.
2: And when we do get a message from Proxima B, what would we do? How will we react? Would it unify us or force us to reconsider our supposedly unique place in the universe? I put this question to Georgina Torbit from Digital
5: Trends magazine. I think there's also a tendency to assume that humans are somehow the pinnacle of, of evolution, that somehow we're the most successful. You know, I think you could make a strong argument that, say, viruses are the most successful evolution of life on this planet.
2: How, do you, how does anyone define success? The dinosaurs didn't go extinct, they just, the ones that survived became birds, and I would say that an animal that survived that and then developed the ability to fly, that, that seems really successful to me.
5: Is it, it's like there's that, um, there's that great joke in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where uh, the dolphins say, of course, that they're the most uh, advanced life on Earth because all they ever do is swim around and have fun. Uh, great. Right. <laughs> <sort of> <laughs> it's a fair point. That's a fair way of looking at it, right? <laughs>
2: um.
1: It's a very fair point.
2: It is a very fair point. So, we started out in the last episode thinking about distance. But because of the vast scales involved in interstellar space, this means comprehending something even more difficult for our species, time. In particular, our fixation on the future.
0: I think we tend to fixate a lot on both the future and the past. We're not so really good at the present moment. So I think we we get hung up about what we did or we didn't do in the past. And we think about what we want to do uh, to try to, to make up for what we haven't already done. We are intrigued by the future. We're sometimes scared about the future. So we want to get a handle on what's coming next.
2: The scale of this endeavor is just simply beyond anything our species has ever attempted. And I think some people misunderstand the purpose of of these endeavors if they think the only positive result is the one that is expected
0: there is a need to live with the unknown yeah. um, and to live without guarantees you know, I, I think so often we want something that we know is going to turn out we want an investment that we're sure about but you know a lot of the most important choices that we make don't come with guarantees you get married there's no guarantee it's going to work out Um, but we make commitments and we do everything we can to make them come true and I think that's an important mindset for um, a society that expects all of its rewards right now that wants immediate gratification
5: Yeah, I I think that's definitely a good point I think you can't necessarily predict the outcome of a scientific endeavour and you can't necessarily measure its success based on whether or not it achieves the original stated aim. You know, there's a whole lot of um, inventions and discoveries that happened by chance while working on other things. Um, and if we were pouring hundreds of millions into SETI research, then I would say that money could be better spent elsewhere. But as a relatively small amount of money, um, it seems it seems almost like, why not? You know, what's the harm for the uh, small chance that we could discover something amazing?
4: We need to be willing um, to make an investment of the future without a guarantee. If If we always require a guarantee, we are foreclosing possibilities of success. Now, ultimately, at the end, if in fact, we don't get a reply, we've tried a lot of things, we might conclude that effectively, we are alone in the universe. So even if they are out there, you know, We've kind of exhausted the options that we can imagine to find them, um, but we can't exclude the possibility that they are out there.
2: Maybe wondering what or who is out there is fundamentally the same question as what does the future hold? In any case, the future is a hard thing to wrap our minds around because we're not going to be there for it. And being a fundamentally self-centered species, we can't imagine existence without us, right? How dare the cosmic party continue without us? We live in fear of perpetual, eternal FOMO. Fear of missing out for you older folks. Here again is Georgina Torbett of Digital Trends Magazine.
5: Any attempts to contact alien life are very unlikely to be successful, but I don't think that necessarily means we shouldn't try it. I think the, you could argue that the the benefits uh, to even knowing that other intelligent life exists in the galaxy, let alone being able to actually communicate with them, the benefits of that to humanity would be so great that it is worth the relatively small amount of expense that goes to projects like SETI.
4: Both? SETI and Medi need to acknowledge the possibility that, you know, we get no signal, we never get a response, and then we're left with a big unknown, because that doesn't ultimately prove one way or another whether there's life out there. We can prove, we have the possibility of proving it is out there, but if we don't get a reply, it could still be out there, it's just not making itself known. But what if all the aliens are doing what we're doing, which is just listening and not transmitting? I mean, it would be a very quiet universe. <laughs> There's also the sobering possibility that in spite of our best efforts, in spite of our ongoing commitment, that our attempts to find these long-lived, stable civilizations ultimately will fail. And so imagine, imagine a thousand years from now, um, we are continually listening. We're still listening. And all we hear is this resounding silence what then? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue that if, in fact, we are still listening a thousand years from now, then whether or not there is any intelligence in the universe, it will be a resounding success. Because, in, in effect, we will have become that long-lived, stable civilization that is able to commit to the future that we're looking for right now. And right now we're looking for it out in the stars. But by our very actions and our commitment to a multi-generational project of a scope that has never been done before, we will realize that by our own efforts, we have become a much more mature and stable civilization.
2: If you hear
4: back You'll you'll let us know, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. This will be this will be a challenge. We'll continue. We'll get the observing set up, and you keep the podcast going for another twenty four years.
2: I can. We can do that. We can do that. All right. Take, okay. Good. Take care, good. Doug. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. I like the use of his term "sobering" in response to just resounding silence. Our species wants to not be all alone in the universe, and to fill that need for a cosmic parent, we have invented gods and aliens. Maybe we are still feeling our adolescence and simply wish for someone to come rescue us. And it's sobering indeed to think we are effectively alone and we have to save ourselves. And no signals means just that. It's time to grow up, learn how to wipe our own bottoms, be responsible, and take care of the planet and each other. Fucking liberal. <laughs> <laughs> I have editorial power. I'm believing that. I
1: like it. It's one of my favorite things about our species. Actually, mm-hmm. is is this need to look beyond the European continent, beyond the Westward expansion, beyond. Mm-hmm global communication beyond the sky that, you know, we're sort of this naked creature in the dark wandering around screaming, Hey, (laughs) can anybody hear me? It's true. But, you know, we have to deal with a very real possibility that there, that might be specific to our species that, there are other species out there content to be in the dark and alone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a wonderful book by, do you know Stanislav Lenz? He's this Polish science fiction writer. He wrote Solaris. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great science fiction writer. And he has another book called His Master's Voice. And it's a wonderful book. It's as much philosophical as it is... Um, science fiction but he 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 takes on two very big ideas in this realm number one you know doug said we 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 may have to deal with the fact that there are a lot of civilizations out there that are sort of porpoise like or whale like that are highly intelligent intelligent but have not built radio mm-hmm. antennas mm-hmm. well he takes that idea beyond that and we have to contend with the fact that maybe, you know, there are alien civilizations that are highly intelligent that look at radio communication like cave paintings, and mm-hmm. they're not looking for it. Mm-hmm. And in the book, first contact comes through some graduate students who are who are on a completely different assignment looking at uh, neutrinos, and they notice uh, a pattern within the spins of neutrinos. Mm-hmm. Coming to Earth, mm-hmm. and they unpack some data. But then it also deals with this idea borrowed from Carl Sagan, which is that if we ever do make contact, it is highly, highly likely mm-hmm. that we will have no f-ing idea what the other species is trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That if we, as you said earlier, if we look at the, 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 Endeavors to communicate with other species on our own planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're talking about trying to communicate with species from an entirely other solar system, it may turn out to be as big a problem as actually making contact.
2: And something that got kind of edited out of this one uh, is that we assume that they are going to be visual at all mm-hmm. or that they can hear at all. Yeah there are evolution there are evolutionary tracks on other planets that would preclude the necessity for some of these things what if there's no light what if they're subterranean what if uh, there's no medium to carry sound there's oh, there's it's it's the most speculative open-ended question we could possibly ask and i think it's why uh it's a question that we're now attempting to answer scientifically but also one that has been Broached spiritually and religiously, what fascinates me is that we need it. That's what I find interesting. You know, like I it's not—it's it. yeah. not just oh, let's go explore more territory. It's an assumption that we're not alone. I think there's something in our species that's really afraid of being alone. Mm-hmm. I, we really want someone else out there. Yeah, and I think that fuels, like I said everything from you know wandering sky hunters to gods to aliens we 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 and i think it comes from um the adolescence of our species i think we do want someone to come wipe our bottoms and take care of us (laughs) save us from ourselves
1: as i've thought more about this and grown older um had more experiences um the idea that has started to sit in my consciousness as the most interesting, uh, has been the idea that perhaps they are already here mm-hmm. and we're not listening or mm-hmm. not seeing in the right way. And that touches on Carl Sagan's idea of right. the Flatlanders. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um,
2: f- so it's, it, it's it, w- it wasn't Carl Sagan's theory. He used it. He... he, he did a a very funny job of um, narrating it, but it was someone else's idea, and I I don't remember who it was. But the idea was that, you know, there are other dimensions out there, and we can't conceive of them, because we live in three, well, four, if you include time. Um, But what about creatures that would live in a two-dimensional reality called, theoretically called Flatland? And uh, Carl Sagan represented this as a... um, flat, you know, sheet with little houses and stuff in it, and there are triangle people and square people and round people, and they have no Z dimension whatsoever, no height, nothing. You want to say, well, maybe it was an atom high. No, 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 that's a dimension. There's none. They only have X and Y. They live on a flat, flat plane. So, One of us, a three-dimensional being, is watching all of this from above, from a a third dimension that is inconceivable to a flatlander, and says, I'm going to go pay them a visit. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. in order for a three-dimensional being to intersect with two-dimensional space, you have to yourself be represented two-dimensionally in flatland. So a three-dimensional being would descend into flatland and be and suddenly just appear out of nowhere he has this you you, as a three-dimensional being you have not come in from x-axis or y-axis you have not come in uh from the left or right door you've just appeared out of nowhere and you are gradually representing yourself as slices of yourself as you descend through the plane through a flatland and it's going to be a very upsetting experience For anyone that lives in Flatland because they've never seen anything like this before so you say I will help this little Flatlander understand three dimensional space I will pick him up and I will toss him into the third dimension and he'll float around for a while and then he floats back down into Flatland where he now has to try to explain his experience to his fellow Flatlanders and (laughs) and he won't be able to because they're going to say my god where did you go and where did you just come from and he'll say I don't know it wasn't left or right it wasn't x or y it's this new dimension called up and they'll say sure and they will in the words and, the, and I have to do my Carl Sagan impression now and they will pat him on his side and feel sympathetic <laughs> I love that detail. Yeah, They didn't pat him on the head. He has no head. <laughs> they have to condescendingly pat him on his side and <laughs> feel sorry for the Flatlander Square. <laughs> and 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 they think he has gone insane. <laughs> because he'll never be able to describe a dimension that is completely outside of everyone else's experience. Yeah, yeah. And we ourselves are trapped in three dimensions. Yeah. There are others, and we can't even imagine them. Yeah. I mean, I've tried, and I can't quite wrap my head around it. Yeah. But there there could easily be beings in that dimension that are looking at us the same way and trying to communicate with us, as you've pointed out, uh, coming at us from vectors that we just don't fathom.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're just in the very early stages of understanding the multiverse, which is a different episode, Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, oh God, are we doing that one too?
2: <laughs> yeah, we're going to
1: have to, but the multiverse is a big, big, big reality. This smacking physicists in the face today.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, and, it, and it's so weird. It, it reminds me of what, uh, something that Niels Bohr said in a conference that the uh physics has become so strange that you genuinely that you legitimately can't tell the difference between a certified particle physicist and some crackpot on a bench somewhere you know with schizophrenia talking
1: nonsense absolutely <laughs> we're getting into places in in physics these days that are forcing certain people in the scientific community to start to start reconsidering intelligent design. Mm. It's a crazy, crazy place that we're getting into. We literally have, there's an entire field of physics budding where they're looking for what is called the lattice, Mm -hmm. the structure upon which everything is built.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that we are too small to ask the right questions.
2: I think we're getting frustrated. Uh, And, and this is a whole other episode We've 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 introduced at least three or four whole other episodes at the tail end of this one because it's such a big question. We're going to start flying in physicists to, because to Connecticut it's, because because it's such a big question. It leads everywhere. It is. It's, and it's, this is
1: why. And this is why I was so excited about this episode and am excited about this episode because with what Doug is doing, I truly cannot imagine a. Bigger thought experiment. Yeah, no, I can't. Either. Then, then, okay. How are you going to communicate to an extraterrestrial intelligence? Can there be a bigger idea, both in terms of of the creativity involved and the implications involved?
2: No, yeah, I can't. I, I, I think in, uh, something else that got edited out. And you asked him, you know, what was his favorite part of his job, and he said it was the his it had afforded him the opportunity to talk with thinkers in so many different disciplines. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's talking to anthropologists and and marine biologists and linguists and astrophysicists. I mean, you have to consider the whole sum of human knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to because what's out there. Is at is beyond is at the edge of and beyond the sum of all human knowledge. Yeah. So you've got to pack everything you know before you start heading out there to try to answer that question. And I lo-
1: love how we're starting with this is sixty kilohertz. This is three seconds. This is ninety kilohertz. And then this is Chuck Berry.
2: This is Johnny B. Good. This is Barry White. <laughs> this is EDM. <laughs> and, 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 and right now, I've, I did not rehearse this part, but I have, I have before me a map that shows the radiation leakage coming off of Earth and wh- how far it's gone so oh far. Oh my God, really? Yes. So okay. we, we, we have... Uh, maybe you can help me read this.
3: Alpha Centauri at 5,000 light years
2: has already received... Jackson Timberlake Super Bowl.
1: <laughs> Wait, What is Jackson? Michael Jackson?
2: No, uh, Janet Jackson. You know Janet the, Jackson. The, oh, the wardrobe the, oh, the
1: Timberlake. Janet Jackson Timberlake wardrobe. If Alpha okay, Centauri yeah, they're is they're tuned in, so they've already seen that out.
2: Jackson. Uh, it's like Jackson's nipple. And they're having that debate oh, right now. Oh, Family Guy Alpha is Centauri. beyond
3: that. Vega at twenty-five light years.
2: Vega is about to receive Punky Brewster, Mammy Vice, Night Court, the Apple Macintosh (laughs) Super Bowl
1: commercial. I'm so sorry, Vega. Wait, who's getting the Dukes of Hazzard? Oh, it's already gone past. Where's the Dukes of Hazzard? Draconia, And it's going to hit...
3: Pollux at thirty five light years.
1: Right, and but
2: and in Pollux is also the same time they get the Dukes of Hazard, they're gonna get Buck Rogers, Knots landing in uh, the facts of life.
1: Oh, you are in for some good T V Pollux. I mean come on, <laughs> Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> what if one of these They'll really never th- try to invade <laughs> if we have the Dukes of Hazard. One of these is really gonna catch on. now here's a nice one.
2: Zeta Reticuli. Oh shoot.
3: Zeta Reticuli at forty light years.
2: Uh, is going to watch the Apollo 11 moon landing mm-hmm. the final season of the original Star Trek <gasps> oh. and the Brady Bunch oh. and MASH so
1: they're going to think we're on our way yeah right Right. they're yeah. going to be excited about
2: this
3: Beta Aquarii at 45 light years
2: it has seen uh, Beatles on the ed sullivan show and gilligan's island oh those poor people had <laughs> the monsters <and> galaxy <laughs> quest for those who I don't recognize that reference <laughs> and this goes on for a while so let's skip ahead let's see, okay. uh up to
3: Hi mency at 60 light years
2: have seen the lone ranger the goldbergs oh. the first emmy awards and howdy doody
1: okay so this is getting into okay this is getting into world war Two. Uh, this is getting into, in, 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 contact, the first images that were sent back were of Hitler, which mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's one of our first, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. TV broadcasts, um, that's about to reach where? Uh, World War II, that's about to reach,
3: uh... Aldebaran. Do you know how far Aldebaran is? At 65 light years.
1: Aldebaran is, yeah. And, and they're, they're about to see images of World War II. That's not good. And
2: then a little bit beyond that, about around 77 uh, light years, uh, they are getting their first broadcast of baseball. Oh. And FDR, the very first president to give a speech on television. Oh, so that's good.
1: So they've already seen, okay, we, we know how to sport. They're going to catch
2: uh, some speechifying from FDR. Yeah. And then they're the going to catch uh, some baseball. It's so a yeah. nice way to spend a Saturday evening if you're an alien.
1: And, they're gonna think, and then they're going to think that we killed and ate each other.
2: <laughs> and they're going to see World War II and go, no thank you. <laughs> right. The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode by Brandon Edgens and Gustav Holst. Thanks, Gustav. Special thanks to Doug Vokic for sitting down with us and risking imagination and taking on this endeavor without a guarantee of success. Humanity thanks you. And thank you to Georgina Torbett for helping us out along the way. If you've not done so already, please go to thewellpod.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Write us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. Tweet about us. Share the word on Facebook. Everything really helps. Thank you. Thank you. And have a groovy week.